Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In the last episode, we covered kind of the villain origin story of the Bondurant brothers. And unfortunately, I wish it ended with the last episode, but it didn't. If you didn't listen to the last episode, you probably want to before you listen to this one, just so you have some background. We're building on it, but certainly you don't have to listen to the last one. There'll be some things that probably won't make sense, but most of it, eh, you'll probably be able to follow along. So your call. Now let's get into it. After the horrific beating and murder of Gwen Duggar, these Bondurant bros decided that they had to dispose of her body. And so they took her body and they get some rubber from the rubber factory because rubber burns super hot and for forever. And they put her in a barrel and they burned it uh, until there's like literally nothing left. Oh, wow. In addition to burning her in an effort to get rid of the evidence, they cleaned up the house where this crime had taken place. And they took all of the evidence that was there, the physical evidence. And they also wanted to burn that as well. Now, they didn't burn it in the same 55-gallon drum. They actually took that stuff and had uh, just an on-the-ground fire pit kind of situation. And they burned stuff there. And in sort of an effort to try to conceal that, oh, here's some weird things, you know, if somebody ever came along and they don't want to see these personal belongings or bloody rags or whatever, that kind of stuff just laying out, charred remains in a fire pit. So they took some furniture and other odds and ends, things like that, and put that on top of the evidence so that if you came along, you'd just see part of a couch or something like that. You wouldn't see personal belongings or the bloody evidence, things of that nature. Now, after a couple days or so, Gwen's body had been reduced to ashes, and it took a while. It had to burn pretty hot and for a long time, but eventually her remains get to the point that she's essentially cremated, and the brothers, they take her ashes, and they just spread them out in a nearby river as the last bit of concealing what they've done to her. And again, they're living by this mantra of no body, no crime. So they believe if the body's never found, then you can't be prosecuted for anything because there's no crimes taking place. That's their thing throughout all of their crimes. And Gwen's family, obviously, they're looking for her. They're concerned. She's not around. It's not normal for her not to be there and to be missing. And this hasn't happened. This wasn't an issue. It wasn't like she was the kind of person that would take off on a long weekend trip and not tell anybody, things like that. So they're concerned and they're looking for her. They've got flyers put up. They've got the police involved and that kind of thing. And so they're doing everything they can to try to find her. And along those lines, one of her cousins and her brother, the same brother who had actually been with her, the night that she was last seen alive at the Bondurant's house. Remember the brother from the last episode? They were there to pick up a car that Pete and Pat had been at their place to be worked on. Yeah, yeah. Gwen wanted to stay for the party, and the brother ended up wanting to leave, and so the Bondurant brothers assured him that Gwen would be safe and taken care of. Yeah. So the brother is aware that the last time he saw her was at their house, and so they go out, and they're heading that way, and they're actually heading toward the residence and they find Pete. And so they decide that they're going to, you know, kind of maybe confront him a bit and try to find out, like, what do you know? Where's Gwen? But remember at this point, she's just missing, right? So it, it's not like it's been three years or there's any evidence that she's been murdered or that even been injured at this point. She's just missing. So I want to read a quote from one of the court opinions in this case about what takes place in this interaction. So the opinion says, in June of 1986, Jack Swanner and Ken Swanner, that's the cousin and the brother, embarked on another effort to locate the victim. While en route to the Bondurant residence, they observed Pete Bondurant on the interstate. They follow Pete to a nightclub. At the nightclub, the Swanners confront Pete. Pete stated, 
quote, I didn't kill her. I ain't done nothing. Leave me alone. I'm crazy. No kidding. The club's owner came outside and told them to break it up. Pete then backed into the nightclub, yelling, I'm crazy. I'd kill once. I'll kill again. The Swanners left. So, Well, at first that sounds like that's an admission, but then remember he's already been convicted of killing one of the Rogers and attempting to kill the others. So he's already done his time, what little time it was on that killing. He can say he was referring to, to that when he says, I've killed before. Yeah. Now remember, Denise is well aware of what the bros have done and what they're capable of. And she says she's uneasy after Gwen being murdered. But Pat supposedly told Denise that, hey, listen, if you ever tell anybody, if you ever try to do anything about this, we're going to bring you down. We're just going to say you did it. It's going to be two against one. So good luck with that. And so she's, according to her, is this uneasy space of grossed out, creeped out, terrified, scared, confused, whatever. And that's her version. I don't know. I'm not in her head. And she stays with him. She says their marriage ended that night in terms of just like, how things were and the way that their relationship was, that was a defining moment, which I guess you see your spouse murder somebody. I would think that would be, that'd be something. I'm not sure what to call it. But eventually, as time goes on, Denise does end up leaving Pat. Now, they're just estranged. They don't get divorced. But the incident that occurs that causes this is that he actually physically assaults her. I mean, seriously, like he's beating on her, choking her. I mean, it is awful. And as if that's not bad enough, She's actually pregnant with his kid when he assaults her. So after this incident takes place, that's like the straw that breaks the camel's back for her. And at that point, she separates herself from him. And even though they're married, they become estranged. And they, she kind of stays in his orbit. They have kid or kids. I think they have a kid and then there's a stepkid or some situation there. So they have some things that are kind of keeping them talking and communicating in each other's lives. But it's certainly it's kind of this odd dynamic. Now, more than that, after she leaves, it's, that was the only part of Pat's life that wasn't totally insane. So Pat just devolves even further into this evil lifestyle that he and Pete seem to just vibe off of. So now there's nothing keeping him even a little bit centered. Yeah, so the brothers, I mean, they're just like in full-on, like, jerk face mode. At this point, everything is just pure evil. It's spiraling out of control. There's nothing, nobody checking anything or preventing anything or even just making them question. They're just going full ham on it. And as Pat's kind of spiraling out of control, one of the things that we see is this really just goes to another level is that after a night out at the bar, Pat can't find his wallet. It's missing. And some people, you might be like upset about that. You might ask your friends, hey, have you seen it? You know what I did with it? You seen it anywhere or whatever? Apparently... Pat just pretty much immediately suspects one of his only friends, this guy, his first name is Ronnie, goes by Hippie Gaines. So Ronnie Gaines, I'm going to call him Hippie. That was his nickname from everything I can tell. A lot of the folks that he worked with and was friends with, that's what they called him. So uh, I want to call him that too. So Hippie, I mean, sounds like a fun guy to me, right? Pat is just bent on, it had to be Hippie. Hippie took my wallet. And now I want to read, this is directly from another court opinion that was actually authored by the Tennessee Supreme Court, and it summarizes what Pat did to his friend, Hippie. This is what it says. The defendant, Pat Bondurant, and the victim, William Ronnie Hippie Gaines, were friends and co-workers at the Pulaski Rubber Company in Giles County. Gaines left work on Friday, October 17, 1986, and has never been seen alive since. Five days later, on Wednesday, October 22, 1986, Gaines's house was damaged by a fire that arson investigators determined had been set in the front left bedroom. A missing person investigation to locate Gaines began on the evening after the fire, 
but was unsuccessful. More than three years later, in May of 1990, law enforcement officers interviewed Denise Bondurant, the defendant's estranged wife. According to Denise Bondurant, who testified at trial, the defendant had confessed to her both the killing of Gaines and the burning of the victim's house. Denise testified that the defendant had been angry at Gaines for some time because the defendant suspected that Gaines had stolen his wallet containing money from the monthly Social Security disability check belonging to the Bondurant's disabled son, Matthew. During this time, the defendant had made veiled threats against anyone who stole from him or little Matthew. That's his quote. The defendant told Denise that on the evening of October 17th, while at Gaines's house, he caught Gaines cheating while playing cards. At this point, the defendant just went off, that's what she said, and beat Gaines to death with a small rocking chair because he, quote, could not allow anyone to take anything from little Matthew. The beating, which continued for 30 minutes after Gaines had died, was of such force as to leave only a small piece of the rocking chair intact. Oh, wow. The defendant and his brother, Pete Bondurant, dismembered the victim's body, cleaned the house so no trace of blood or hair remained, and transported the body to their parents' home in West Point, Tennessee, where they burned the corpse. What do you think about that? Since you asked, I'll be judgmental. Why is Pat gambling with his kid's Social Security disability money in the first place? He himself was stealing that money by using it to gamble rather than care for the kid. And as far as hippie cheating, that might just be that hippie was winning. And in Pat's self-centered world, that would be the only possible way that hippie was winning is if he were cheating. Or maybe the whole story of hippie cheating him out of money and stealing his wallet is all bullshit. And in his twisted mind, something else entirely prompted him to beat hippie to death. And then setting the guy's house on fire and then burning his body somewhere else. These brothers seem to have a fondness for fire that's disturbing in its own right. It's, is it one of these fires that drew attention to Pat in this murder, or how did that go down? Immediately after Hippie's house fire is put out and he's nowhere to be found, law enforcement suspects that the Bonder and Bros are to blame. The fire investigation finds that this was an arson, and for good reason. The Bros had put a candle on the bed in the bedroom with flammable material all around it so it would burn his house down and hide any evidence that they might have missed from their crime. If that's not all horrible and shocking enough, and I know I've said that like four times, but these guys really are just like the worst. The bros take Hippie's dismembered body, which they chopped it up in the bathtub in his house. They take his body to their parents' place, which at that time, as far as I can tell, there's no indication the parents are there, that they have any idea that any of this is going on in terms of they're not actively involved. But so they take it to their parents' house and they do basically the same thing they did with Gwen's body. They put his remains in this barrel and they burn it over a couple, two or three days. They use rubber from the rubber plant to sustain and heat up the fire to make sure it gets to a high enough level. I don't know. You can't just, it's not like you, know, you can just use a regular old, you know, put somebody on a fire pit and they're going to turn to ashes. You got to get, it's a really hot fire when people are cremated. It's extremely hot. It's not the kind of thing that you can pull off with an easy bake oven. During this gruesome burning, Denise ends up over there at the Bondurant family residence, and Pat tells her about what he did and what he and Pete were there doing. You know, basically says that, and I'm, this is not me characterizing it. This is what he's saying. He says, yeah, that flaming barrel over there, that's what's left of Ronnie Gaines. That's what's left of old hippie. And so as a court opinion noted, he tells her this, nobody messes with little Matthew. He disrespected little Matthew. He took his money. So, you know, nobody messes with little Matthew. Like that justifies what he's done. Now, again, authorities are looking hard at Pat and his brother for these crimes, but at this point, they don't have any remains, they don't have any evidence to go on, 
And remember, again, throughout this whole thing, Pete and Pat have this no body, no crime mantra. Now, the state fire marshal immediately suspects arson. And so Pat ends up getting hauled in for questioning, but he brings an attorney with him, which raised authority suspicion even more. But I want to be clear. I mean, that, that'll raise police suspicion because, you know, what do you got to hide? But at the flip side of that is you have a right to a lawyer. You have a right to remain silent. These are all constitutional rights. And I'm not talking to the police without my lawyer present. Me either. After all the cases we've seen where the interrogation is what lands some people in prison and they're proven innocent 25 years later, I'll resist the urge to talk even though I have nothing to hide and insist on having my attorney. That's just, that's good advice. Anyway, so during this interview, Pat insists that he has an alibi. He's like, yo, I, there's no way I'm, I couldn't have done it. His alibi is a girlfriend, not his wife, Denise, but a girlfriend, Terry Lynn Clark. Pat says, well, Terry Lynn, she's my girlfriend. Go talk to her. She'll, she's my alibi. So investigators, they set up an interview with Terry. But you want to guess what happens? I can't even imagine with these people. Two days before the interview, she's found dead. No shit. The alibi witness? Yep. And you care to guess where she was discovered? In a fire pit? Inside the Bondurant house. What? Exactly. So the brothers themselves call the police to report that she's died either in her sleep or of an overdose while in bed with Pete at their house. You scratching your head yet? I mean, it's crazy. Wait a minute. Maybe I misunderstood. I thought you said that Terry Lynn was Pat's girlfriend, but then Pat claims she died in bed with Pete? You'd be correct. I'm not mixing these up. These two disgusting dirtbags, although it would be pretty easy to mix them up, in this instance, that's not the case. So Pat told investigators that he and Terry had traveled out of town on the night the hippie disappeared. But of course, Terry's not around now to corroborate or deny his story because she's no longer alive, having been found deceased in the Bondurant house in a bed that she was supposedly sharing with Pete. And police would later learn that a witness observed Pete shooting Terry up repeatedly with the powerful barbiturate while she sat half-conscious on a beanbag chair the day before police found her dead. Nonetheless, it took three years for any movement on these murders, which is, it's a little crazy to me that you have these guys out there dirtbagging it up and murdering people, and somehow this goes on for three years. Now, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent Bill Coleman says he went to Denise one day and just said, he just kind of leveled with her, and he said, don't you think it's time to talk about this? And as luck would have it, she was dating a law enforcement officer at the time, allegedly, and she'd reached this point where it seems like the scale had tipped, and now she was willing to tell police about the evil things that she'd seen and heard Pat and Pete do. And Coleman says that he never caught Denise on a lie. It always led to incredible stuff that they were never able to find anything that kind of impeached anything she said. So he seemed to be defending her in the sense that even though she certainly had a part in all this, that at least at this point, she really was coming clean. Denise, I think she's like one of those, you know, the black and white pictures uh, where it's like, what do you see? Do you see the butterfly? Do you see the skull? And it's supposed to tell you about, what are they called? A uh, Rorschach test, sometimes called ink blots. Right, right, right. Okay. So it's like one of those where it's, you know, it gives you insight about how you see things. But in this instance, it's, I just mean, some people see a butterfly, other people see a skull with Denise. I think that's how it's going to play out because is this all self-serving? And the reason why I say that is because in exchange for her testimony, she got them to give her immunity on everything. So part of her agreement was, I'll tell you what you want to know. I'll give you the information. I'll testify. But in exchange for that, I get immunity for anything related to any of this stuff as far as I'm concerned, which is a pretty solid deal and made it so that she was able to avoid prosecution for any of 
her knowledge, involvement, and the delay in resolving these crimes. The stuff that she had seen shocked even the seasoned investigators from that area. And, you know, I mean, we've already talked about some of this. It's just evil on another level. So I'm not surprised that they found it appalling, some of the things that she was telling them. Now, the police know, and the prosecutors especially know, that they're going to need more than just Denise's word. So Denise takes the investigators out to the place where Gwen's body and other evidence had been burned. And she tells them and shows them where everything took place on the brother's property, right? The room, this is, you know, the room where it happened and all that kind of stuff. So even though it's been about four years, the investigators brought in some CSI techs and they spray luminol in this room. And Coleman, that agent from the TBI, says that the room just completely lit up. So they take some samples and eventually they're able to determine their human blood samples, but they're unable to connect it to Gwen. So when they leave after this sort of initial real scouring of the crime scene, they don't have anything. Remember, her ashes were spread out in the river. They've burned all the evidence and they can't find anything that seems to really connect it to Gwen. And even though there's no body, they're determined that it's not going to be no crime. And they're concerned that if they don't do something with these guys, if they don't at least try to stop them, that they're just going to keep murdering people. In April of 1990, the prosecutor indicts the brothers. Well, the murder of Gwen could have been prevented if Pete had been sentenced appropriately for murdering Roger, who we talked about in the last episode. And the murder of Hippie and probably the death of Terry Lynn could have been prevented if Denise had spoken up about the murder of Gwen. So to me, these brothers should have been stopped years before this. Yeah, right? So the brothers are indicted and the case is moving forward, but at the same time, they're hoping to find more. They need like another piece of evidence or something that just corroborates Denise's story. Because right now with just her word, with the immunity she's been given, the defense is going to be able to poke some holes in that. They're going to be able to impeach her a little bit and say, yeah, of course you're going to say they did it because you got this sweet deal, you know, and then they can ask her questions too about what was your involvement. And she's going to say, Yeah, I was there when he beat her with the axe. What'd you do to stop it? Oh, you cleaned him up afterwards. Yeah, just having that alone in this trial is, it's something, but it's certainly not a slam dunk. You know, you put 12 people in a box and you never know what they're going to do. So as this case is moving down the line like it's supposed to, the investigators are at the prosecution's urging. They want to find more. And so they end up going back to the parents' place. I think it's like maybe like a cabin or some little house in the woods kind of a deal. That's how I, at least from the pictures I've seen and the descriptions and stuff, that's what it strikes me like. So it's this remote, out of the way little place that you could go get some respite if you're not a sick, twisted serial killer. Not the place you go to burn people, which is what they used it for because they're awful. So they go back there and Denise is like, hey, listen. And she draws them a little thing. She's like, you know, here's these sliding glass doors. Okay, if you come over here, not very far from the house, this is where they were doing a lot of the burning when they took Hippie there, because that's where they took Hippie. So they go back and they do some digging this time. And as they do this digging, they end up finding these little tiny bone fragments from a human skull. And so uh, the investigators, you know, that's not helpful for Gwen's case, because Gwen's case is just about Gwen. But it reinvigorates this investigation and gives them some hope that, you know, well, let's go back to that crime scene and see if we can find something there that we didn't find the first time. And so they go back, they make another trip to the site where Gwen's remains were burned. And Denise remembered where the burning pit was for Gwen and also where they had burned the evidence that they were trying to get rid of. So not Gwen, but the stuff. And investigators look at that area and so they start digging up the dirt. 
And as they start digging again, bingo, and there it is. Lo and behold, they start finding things and it lines up with what Denise said. They start finding these springs that are from a couch or a mattress or whatever. Some of this stuff that she had talked about that had went on top of the items that they were really trying to conceal. And then as they keep going, they end up finding one item that is not just anything. It's the key item from this whole search. And do you remember the story about Gwen going out to get diaper pins for her son? Yeah, she ran out to get diaper pins one time and the store didn't have the blue. They only had the pink. She said keeping the diaper on is way more important than the color and bought the pink. And then from that point on, she just always bought the pink for his diapers. Right, right. Exactly. And I think I had mentioned this before, but if I didn't, when her little boy had outgrown diapers, which that goes by pretty quick if you're a parent, you know, and if not, just take my word for it. Well, you know, you get sentimental. Parents do. I do. She, I think, did. At least it sounds that way. So she took one of those pink tip diaper pins that she didn't need to use anymore. Instead of just throwing it in the trash or giving it away, she took one of them and she pinned it on her shoe, on her tennis shoe. And what her family would say was that was just a way that she kind of remembered her son or thought about her son. Just a little thing she'd look down and just through the day to keep with her to, to think about him. So anyway, back to this crime scene. As the investigators dug, they found part of a shoe with a pin, a pink-tipped diaper pin. Somehow, it had survived the fire. Now, fast forward to March 18, 1991, and we're at the trial for the murder of Gwen Duggar in Giles County, Tennessee. Denise was the prosecution's star witness, as you could imagine, and she was detailing everything she knew, everything that the brothers had done that she was aware of, all the things she had seen, all the stuff we've talked about. Agent Coleman, during the trial, he noted that, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So the big boy's mama would go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and bring back each bro his own family-sized bucket of fried chicken. I think the way Coleman describes it, this is like a 20-piece. As you could probably imagine, the agent recounts this as just being like a sight to behold. These two bros are just, they're in this little side room for lunch and they're digging in, covered in chicken grease, just yakking it up like they're at the family reunion, chomping down on fried chicken. Eating like hostages. Yeah, all greasy and whatnot. I mean, it's, yeah. So the prosecution had arranged its case in a way that it was able to sort of build on the evidence and build on the testimony to reach this pinnacle where this moment happens, where they introduce into evidence what was left of Gwen's shoe with this diaper pin that was really, you think about it, that's not, a diaper pin is not unique and a diaper pin attached to a shoe is maybe not unique, but in this situation, in this county where there's not that many people and there certainly aren't that many missing people or people who are missing a shoe or have been murdered and then far less who actually would put a pink tip diaper pin on the shoe. We've got something that might not be unique, but in this situation, in these circumstances, I mean, wow, what powerful evidence, right? And so they bring that in. It's put before the jury. They're able to look at it. They're able to pass it around. And this key piece of evidence, it's really heavy to just stop and think about the fact that this little bit of a shoe that was left with a pin was all that was left of Gwen Duggar after what they had done. And the judge in the case, he noted that this was the most chilling piece of evidence he'd ever seen presented in court before. Now, the brothers were convicted of second-degree murder. I was a little surprised they went with second-degree, but again, you got to think about the evidence in this case, and first-degree would have been that much harder to prove, and so I would imagine that, um, you know, it it was a slam dunk for second-degree, and so that's where it ended up. The judge noted the gravity of this case and just the depths of the depravity demonstrated by the Bondurant brothers. 
Pete and Pat were sentenced to 25 years in prison for the murder of Gwen Duggar. It's it's not enough, but every day these guys aren't on the street is a day somebody else might live. After the Gwen Duggar trial, Pat is tried for Hippie's murder, and he ends up getting convicted. However, this is not a satisfying outcome in any way, shape, or form, because while he is initially convicted and ends up receiving a death sentence, through the appeals process, he gets his capital conviction overturned. He's retried. There's some stuff that happens procedurally. There's a lot. It's very litigious. He ends up with what amounts to a life sentence out of it when it's all said and done. And there's some convictions in there for both of them for Terry Lynn Clark. But for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's like the prosecution was just like, we're going to get them on what we can get them on. And we've already got them on Gwen and this other stuff. But for some reason, the, the amount of time that these guys receive just does not seem to be in any way, shape or form in line with what you would expect after listening to just how awful these guys. There's just there's nothing. Oh. So if your blood isn't boiling yet, which if you're like us, you're probably already there. You're going to definitely want to sit down and, I don't know, just grab something that you can squeeze or be ready to break something or scream into a pillow. Whatever works for you. Just be ready. Because this next part is where you're just like, are you kidding me? Are you serious right now? Now, we got a, can, can you recap for me? Do you remember, do you recall all of the heinous things that Pete's done that he's been convicted of? Well, let's see. When Pete and Pat were young adults or teenagers or whatever, they were burying cats up to their heads and then running over them with lawnmowers. And that, to me, should have been a death penalty case as it was. But what has Pete been convicted of? Well, he killed one of the Rogers, attempted to kill the other Roger. He and Pat both drugged, raped, murdered, dismembered, and then burnt Gwen. They murdered Hippie, dismembered him, burnt his body in one place, set his house on fire. They apparently drugged Terry Lynn to death. I don't know. This is a person that should not ever see daylight again, ever. So what's your reaction when I tell you that old Hugh Peter Bondurant is not even in prison anymore? Baffled and disgusted. Yeah, and no, it ain't because he died. No, this guy was eligible for parole a long time ago, but then he ended up getting out in December of 2016. So the guy literally, he served his sentence, which wasn't enough to begin with, on Gwen's murder. It seems like that's really the amount of time he did was the amount of time for that sentence. But let's not forget, and Pete in particular, before we even got to Tennessee, he's already tried to kill two Rogers, but killed one of them. So Pete, the attempted murder and murderer, comes back home to Tennessee and, and then he's killing and burning houses down and raping and drug dealing and all of it. And our guy does, you know, what, a couple decades in the pen and now he's out living the good life. It's mind boggling. This makes absolutely no sense. All of the depraved, disgusting, horrible, just awful things that he's done. It's insane. I don't understand it. Now, Pat, if you're wondering about where he stands in all this, Pat was actually eligible to be released all the way back in 2012. Yeah. And so his next parole hearing date or the opportunity for them to decide whether they're going to let him out or continue to let him rot in prison is in December of 2025. So we got a couple of years, but uh, it's crazy. Now, if he served out the entire remainder of his sentence, he would be incarcerated until August of 2065. So he'd be like 90 years old and more than likely 
die in prison before he reached that age. Which frankly, I mean, that just seems, that seems appropriate to me. Absolutely. This case, it's just, it's evil. It's wicked. It's wrong. It's horrible. These guys are gross. They're disgusting. I wish that the, the way that they plowed through a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken was the grossest thing about them, but that's like probably their most redeeming quality. You know, it's hard to wrap your mind around two brothers who could be so sick, so twisted to do some of the things that they did and to just not care at all about human life, uh, friendships. I mean, good grief. You got Pat is literally just, he murders his friend Hippie and just beats him to death with a rocking chair because he thinks he took his wallet and he doesn't even know that he took his wallet. He just suspects that he took his wallet. And that's how he responds to somebody who's supposed to be his friend. And from all accounts, it sounded like it was one of the few people that actually maybe was a friend to him. So it's just important to remember Gwen and Terry and Hippie to keep their story alive. And these fat, crappy, gross, disgusting, awful human beings who aren't even both in prison anymore man, all I know is I don't want to live anywhere near Pete. I have no idea where he is. I think my understanding is he's trying to keep his presence on lockdown so people don't know where he is. But we'll share some pics of these guys back in the day and more recently on social media so that in the event that they've moved to your town and they are at the grocery store one day, you know who they are and just stay away. Run. Just get away. And that wraps things up for the Bondurant twins. These guys, this is not double the fun. This is double the wicked, evil, awful human beings. And it's a shame that they're not both going to spend the rest of their days in prison. Hopefully, at least Pat does, even though Pete got out. And man, I just, my heart really goes out to the victims and to their families. And just thinking through what that had to be like for them. And this episode is for the Rogers and for Gwen and for Hippie and for Terry. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. All right, you ready? Go ahead, with What do you want? There. Is that better? Oh, wait.